Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Our story today starts on a school bus in Middle Tennessee between two childhood friends. And that story will end with a vision for healthy quail habitat spanning all the way from Southern Pennsylvania to Central Texas. That vision is known as the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. And we've got four terrific guests lined up to talk about the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. We have Brittany Byers, the Grasslands Coordinating Biologist for Quail Forever, Southeastern Grassland Initiative, and NRCS. Well, you got a big business card, Brittany. (laughs) (laughs) We have Dr. Dwayne Estes, who's been described to me as the prairie preacher. And I want to, I want to validate that that comes out during this conversation. <laughs> He's the executive director of the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative and a botany professor at Austin P University in Clarksville, Tennessee, and making his triumphant return to on the wing <laughs> podcast, a guy that, uh, Sometimes I call Woolly Mammoth. Uh, it, it, it's a very long story. <laughs> it's a long story to bad internet internet connection. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. What uh, yeah. about my, my favorite uh, co-workers in the organization and the brand new, newly minted Quail Forever program manager, Andy Edwards. Um, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining on the Wing Podcast. Before we dive into the story of the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative, let's let's go around the robin and have you introduce a little bit about who you are, uh, where you grew up, what you do for a living, and then just how you got connected to the Southeastern Grassland Initiative. But don't go too far because we're going to have Dwayne tell the story of the, the initiatives beginning, but so we'll start ladies first with, uh, with Brittany who, uh, um, all credit goes to Brittany. She conceptualized this episode of on the wing podcast. So without further ado, Brittany, uh, uh, where'd you grow up and grow up and, and go to school and tell us, tell us your story. Thanks, Bob. So <clears throat> I'm originally from Northeast Texas. Um, my family is from Red River County, um, which is in the Blackland Prairie system. Um, but my parents moved to Indiana when I was young and actually started farming because my dad has a row crop farming background. Um, so I grew up both in Texas and Indiana, which is, um, I guess a little odd, but, um, I guess laid the foundation for where I am today. Um, I was very much a tomboy and was outside all the time hunting and fishing with my dad and helping him farm. Um, and I just knew that I wanted to do something with natural resources. And so I went to Murray state university in the Jackson purchase region of Southwest Kentucky. It was a really good fit for me They have a great wildlife program there. 
Um, and I was fortunate enough to have some summer internships and jobs with Indiana Department of Natural Resources. And I started working for their nature preserves division. And um, that really opened my eyes to grassland systems. I was working in um, glades and barrens restoration. We were doing a lot of um, invasive plant control and prescribed burning and things to manage those grassland um, systems. So uh, then I stayed at Murray State to get my master's degree and I did a, a field botany research project. And I had study sites all over southern Indiana, western Kentucky, and northwest Tennessee, and just continued to expand on my plant knowledge. And that led me to a, um, a partner position focusing on quail habitat in western Kentucky at Peabody Wildlife Management Area. Mm-hmm. And um, so because of my plant and quail background, that's how I got on with Quail Forever back in 2013. And I was a farm bill biologist for three years, a senior farm bill biologist for three years. And I came to Dwayne and Andy and Tim Korn and Kent Adams. And I said, hey, guys, you know, Southeastern Grasslands Initiative has just started and it's really gaining a lot of momentum. Our missions are very synonymous. I would love for us to partner with them and, uh, you know, maybe create some positions. And I just kept pursuing it and um, that worked out. And so now I'm proudly an employee of two wonderful nonprofits. So, all right. So, so then we'll jump to the guy known as Wooly Mammoth. Well, only to me, uh, Andy Edwards been with the organization. Well, let's say this, he's life member number two of Quail Forever. That's right. Uh, you've, been, you've been part of the organization for a long, long time now, Andy. That's right. That's a, that's a pretty prestigious place to be on the life member. I'm I kind of like the, the cream and the Oreo life member. Number one, Howard Vincent, <laughs> me. And then life member number three is you, right? Bob? It is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty neat deal. Um, I'll just go ahead and address the woolly mammoth issue here. But uh, <laughs> one day Bob calls me. I was in Indiana working as a regional biologist uh, for pheasants forever. And uh, he said, hey, man, what's going on? I said, oh, I'm getting ready to go to a Willie Nelson concert. And he said, a woolly mammoth concert? What? <laughs> and uh, so he thought I was into some really alternative stuff. No, I was, I was going to see the redheaded stranger. But um, so been here a while, I guess, uh, started in, in 03 in Indiana and uh, came on as a regional representative up there covering Indiana and the Chicago area, about 10 chapters over there and in Illinois. And when we started um, Quail Forever, I remember it was a lot of fun discussions about how we were going to go down that road. But when we started Quail Forever in, in 05, I was one of only two employees, uh, myself and I think Jason Sykes at that time were the only two employees from the South. Uh, he was a, a, a farm mill bio in Nebraska. And uh, so almost by default, I just got to be the first ever Quail Forever regional rep in the Southeast and, and moved to my hometown, Pulaski, Tennessee in 06 and, um, and took on the 
took on the Southeast. There were eight states at that time that I was covering and, and we were starting chapters and just uh, going going full tilt, pretty hard starting chapters, uh, 15, 17 chapters a year for several years. And, and then um, we, we kind of, I guess, slowed, started slowing down in 08 with the old uh, little recession that hit and, and we took a few years to kind of rebuild the momentum. But Gosh, for since 2000, really, when when Brittany uh, and at that time it was was Courtney uh, who came on in Tennessee as our first biologist in the southeast. Uh, so Tennessee was the wore the proud badge of that. And we added another one on the Cumberland Plateau. And then um, really for a long time, Tennessee was the only state that had any any employee presence for the organization. Um I was covering multiple states, but really the biologists uh, on the ground doing work were, were, was just happening in Tennessee. We formed a great partnership there and it grew into South Carolina um, and, and someone on the ground there. And then has since with the the um, development of the Working Lands for Wildlife program that Jess McGuire is, is uh, coordinating has just blown up. And uh, anymore, I we're, we're everywhere, I think, except for Florida right now. We don't have a, a biologist on the ground. We have a couple of employees there with a education outreach coordinator and a, and a regional rep. But uh, I've just kind of been along for the ride. I've, I'm excited to kind of see new chapters coming on and new people coming on all the time. But um, my role has shifted from that of regional representative when I was in Indiana, uh, going out and doing landowner visits and, and doing the um, on the ground work, running seed programs and uh, and kind of working with chapters and volunteers to more of in the past eight years, a, a, a focus on chapter development and volunteer um, health and and just assisting chapters and and working some with partners, helping out on some grants and and trying to put new people out on the ground. And so uh, I, I have a whole lot of pride in the in the ownership of the success of well forever just in the fact that i've mostly just been here when it happened i can't can't take much credit for it but um yeah Brittany and i've known each other actually we we did meet in when she was in grad school at murray state they had a, a wildlife conclave there we met then and um we've got to know each other well through the years and uh was able to go how many years ago has that been when we cast netted quail at peabody wma uh, one night with me and uh yeah that was back in 2012 i think yeah that was a lot of fun so we got to we got to have some fun there on the uh one night we went out and and caught some uncollared birds uh with a cast net of all things and uh <laughs> so we go way back and then you know Dwayne, whenever the opportunity came about we saw an um through a rcpp um regional conservation partnership program uh through nrcs sorry so we're gonna no so we're gonna get to that yep but, so some of the chance to to work with some some great folks and maybe that'll segue so well uh, you're you're very humble so i want to call out a couple things i i don't i believe this is a true fact nobody has started more quail forever chapters than andy edwards correct um Tim Corrin would contest that. <laughs> well, Tim's not on the podcast. He's not on here to defend himself. <laughs> so it's absolutely true. And uh, we're not going to let a Timmy tail get in the way of, of the truth here on this. So he would, uh, 
No, I, I think that's right, Bob. It's it's fifty plus, but yeah. he would be in that in that category as well for for a lot the of chapter parts. The other thing you talked about when early on a quail forever, we only had um, some a few employees in the south, and it took a little while to get momentum. Um, if you were to do a count now, depending on how you slice it, we um, it's a dead heat between employees that would be categorized as quail forever versus quail, uh, pheasants forever. And it depends on where you draw the line in those, some of those mixed bag states, you right. know, the Nebraska's and the Kansas. Mm-hmm. Just, just a testament to how much the quail forever side has grown, particularly as you mentioned through the working lands for wildlife. Yeah. Uh, Our partners have just really provided a, a great opportunity for us. Our typical model was to have volunteers and chapters in an area yeah. and then develop the staff i would say with quail forever in most areas we've actually done that the opposite way we were able to put biologists on the ground and then have development follow uh that that boots on the ground effort so yeah it's been it's been great so if if folks um are listening and in recognize andy's voice from previous podcasts you were on the one that we recorded at pheasant fest 2020 with Ben Jones, the CEO of uh, the Rough Grouse Society, who was your uh, one of your college roommates, correct? Yeah, well, um, college college buddy. He was college actually um, he mm-hmm. was already married at that time. I spent a whole lot of time on he and Michelle's couch. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, we 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 hung out a whole lot together. So he and I loved bluegrass music and uh, got got uh, tied close together with that. And yeah, we spent a whole bunch of time together. He's a great friend. <laughs> All right, so we've got the Prairie Preacher on on the podcast with us, so we got to make sure we give him the microphone. Um, Dwayne Estes, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, tell us a little bit about your back background, Dwayne, and um, um, and then we can address the the Prairie Preacher component uh, after we get to that point. Well, hey, Bob, thanks for having me on the podcast today. And uh, it's such a pleasure to be here with good partners at Quail Forever and Pheasants Forever and um, two of my good teammates here with Brittany and Andy. And, um, you know, I, I go back really to the same place that Andy goes back to. He and I just happened to be two two people who rode the same school bus uh, together <laughs> as kids. Oh, good old bus 22 driven by uh, Mr. Doodle Kirk. But Andy was a, a grade or two ahead of me in school, and um, but we lived on the same road and, and, and really the same community, and um, you know, kind of grew up, I think, with a lot of similar experiences. Uh, both of us grew up roaming the hills and hollows of southeastern Giles County, Tennessee, and hunting deer and hunting um, squirrels and all kinds of stuff. And you know, I remember back in those days. Um, really frequently, you know, I was just going around looking at stuff. And I, I realize now looking back that, you know, those experiences of growing up in the country and roaming the hills and hollows and going through brushy pastures and, you know, hugging trees and um, all those experiences were were forming in me this really important conservation ethic that eventually would lead me to go into a career in conservation and biology, especially. And, um, also, I remember about how it really a formative thing at the time that I didn't really put put together until later was the fact that I used to, you know, kick up 
cubbies of quail and those brushy edges of old fields. And, um, you know, the farther I got into my life, I went on and got my degree in botany at Middle Tennessee State University and went on after that and got a PhD in botany at the University of Tennessee and then became a professor at Austin Peay State University. And, and it was not until we got on this journey to create the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative that I, I realized, man, it's been almost 25 years since I've seen Bob White quail. And so that really, that story resonates with our origin story for SGI and um, the connection of the loss of these, these birds, which need these grassy, shrubby, you know, grassland, open woodland, savanna habitats. That was really a significant factor in the origin of, of, of our organization. So that's a little bit about me, just a country boy who grew up like, like to go around looking at stuff and uh, <laughs> was fortunate to make a career out of it. <laughs> I, I gotta, I gotta interject that, you know, my memories of Dwayne, you know, he was a quiet guy growing up and he was in the paper several times with four, eight. Yeah. Brittany's like, really? But he, he was in the paper several times. He was always, you know, doing dendrology and, and he's a tall at that time. Well, I'm not saying you're not tall and skinny now, but you were really tall and skinny in a bean pole. And he got the nickname tree because like huh. everybody knew that that was the guy that knew everything there was to know about trees. <laughs> and so it's just perfect, you know, that he, his life course has stayed really true through the, you know, through the years, like he's the go-to guy, I would say, and he's not going to say this, but he's widely recognized as the, the best botanist in Tennessee or dang near it. And mm. he's, he's the go-to for a whole lot of, whole lot of folks for, you know, anything to do with, with botany in Tennessee. So on that school bus, were, were there other other kids that end up ended up being in the same conservation world as you fellas or are you guys kind of two peas in the pod and, and the rest were went different directions? I don't think there was anything necessarily in the water. I think it uh, just happened <laughs> to be us happened to be the two of us and it's a crazy I mean what a route you know it was 20 yeah. years that we didn't didn't have any contact really with each other until kind of the the advent of the southeastern grasslands initiative and the chance to work together um and it was a little bit of a it wasn't a stretch Brittany mentioned it you know she had been working with Dwayne some and and we were working on this proposal to to add some people on the ground and she was like hey I think Dwayne's thinking about doing that and so it's like well wait a minute I called Dwayne I'm like you know we're really pretty good at putting people on the ground effectively. Y'all are really good at, at your niche with prairies and, and talking about their importance. This just makes sense. Mm. And uh, it's been great. So let's, let's dive into that origin story, Dwayne, that you, you started to talk about. Like you, you looked around and you're like, Whoa, there's the landscape has changed. There's not the quail on the landscape of Tennessee that there once was. And that was the catalyst for an idea for you, correct? Yeah, for me, you know, being a botanist, I kind of look at this mostly through a botanical lens, right? I think of the plants as being ideal storytellers of what's happened on the land. They're a good barometer for what's happening. Hmm. Same way, you know, with the decline of quail, obviously, is a good barometer, too, that something's wrong. 
But, you know, with plants, we can go out and read a landscape and the plants make sense because, you know, obviously quail are going to eat seeds of those plants. So what they're eating and they're going to provide the cover for quail that quail are going to need. Likewise, they're providing the same types of um, resources for pollinators, for mammals, reptiles, and so, and so forth. So by knowing plants, we can, we can really read the clues and the, the change of the landscape over time. And what I began to realize in my short sort of 20 years as a botanist at that point was that a lot of the stuff that was rare in the 60s was gone today. You don't even see it anymore, plant-wise, rare plant species, that is. A lot of the stuff that was infrequent in the 60s and 70s, today we know it from like one or two populations. So it's on its last leg. And when we begin to look at what, what the unifying factor is with all that, they're all species that need open landscapes. They need those brushy, grassy, you know, open savanna, woodland, meadow kind of landscapes. And that's just the thing now that a lot of people want to mow to death or they want to put a food plot in to cover up an existing grassland. Maybe they don't realize it's an existing prairie, so they, they put in a food plot. Or a lot of it's been lost to just growing up, you know, succession mm. of forest. So as I saw those things being lost, I cared deeply about it and it affected me. And, and there was um, some momentum that was beginning to build in the community. You know, you had Quail Forever was already really getting this message going. You had American Bird Conservancy talking, obviously, for a long time about grassland birds. There began a, a big understanding that pollinators were generally on the decline, things like monarch butterflies. And um, 2012, there was a really important symposium, began to bring a lot of people together. It's called the Southeastern Prairie Symposium at Mississippi State University. And um, that year was also monumental because Dr. Reed Noss, uh, retired now from the University of Central Florida, published his Forgotten Grasslands of the South book. And really began, I think, to put grasslands in the southeast on a on the continental map in terms of their importance to uh, grassland biodiversity for North America. And so using those two things, I, I thought there'd be a lot of takeaway momentum for other parts of the southeast going forth in 2013, 2014. And there has been certainly among certain uh, groups. But one thing I think that um, about 2015 or so, I didn't see the kind of momentum still uh, gaining ground that, that I felt like we really needed. Like we had really strong voices from the wildlife biology community suggesting, hey, we need more grasslands. We need more grasslands. But it wasn't that way within the more of the ecological community. They were still latching on to this concept that most of eastern North America should be dense forest. And I think that same trend was carrying forth in, in major landscape conservation. If you look back at the 90s and even the 2000s, a lot of the big successes that are touted out there, big corporate private connections, you know, it's buying up tons of forest land, protecting tons of bottomland hardwood forest or coastal, uh, coastal marine habitats. But not a lot of focus is going on a big scale for eastern grasslands. And so realizing that in 2015, we said, you know what, let's have our own symposium in Tennessee. And we called it the Mid-South Prairie Symposium. And I never could have guessed, Bob, that the last person out of the 150 people that came, came from New York City. And he's mm. a city guy. You, you To look at him, you never know that he was directly connected or had a 
passion for conservation. But this last person that came, I, I barely had time to even interact with him during this three-day event. But afterwards, he wrote to me and he says, Dwayne, I learned so much about Southern grasslands. What role can private philanthropy play in your mission to restore Southern grasslands? And Bob, I, I'll end with this for a second. I literally had to go look up the word philanthropy to make sure I was understanding it. <laughs> sure. and, I, I, and once I convinced myself of reading the dictionary two or three times, I realized this guy wants to give us some money huh. to, to make change happen. And that's where it all began. So when I think about, or when we've talked, we talk grasslands a lot on this podcast, right? Grasslands equals habitat, which equals quail, which equals pheasants. When I talk to folks, say Great Plains West, they talk about how things have changed with the absence of the bison and absence of, you know, thunder and you know fire on the prairie. Is that the same missing element in the Southeast? Because I don't, I don't automatically think about the Southeast in the same comparable or parallel sort of um, re- rationale for why there's not grasslands in the Southeast. Why, why did they disappear? Yeah, it's well, first thing we have to acknowledge and Reed Noss makes this point in his book that the Southeastern U.S. is the epicenter for biodiversity of grasslands in North America. Hmm. Uh, there are more types of grasslands in the Southeast than in all of the Great Plains of the U.S. and Canada combined. When we talk about wet prairie, calcareous prairie, you know, oak savanna, hydric, blah, blah, blah. There's, there's so many kinds of grasslands in the Southeast. Uh, we just got through working on a project with NatureServe and about uh, 20 other partners to identify what are all the types. And we've come up with a list of 118 kinds of wow. grasslands here in the Southeast. And there's about hmm. another 75 that are what we call secondary types of grasslands. So ultimately there's there's close to 200 different kinds of major grasslands within the South. That's a lot more than the types and variation that you find within the heart of the Great Plains or the entire Great Plains. Um, the other thing that, that then because of our grasslands in the South are associated with so much landscape variation, you know, you can mm-hmm. get to 6,000 feet in the Smoky Mountains and find them. Coastal areas near Miami, uh, dry glades and barrens are almost like little miniature deserts in Southern Missouri all the way to classic tall grass prairie. And so because of that, there's so much more biodiversity that has evolved through the course of the last tens of millions of years. Mm. And um, so that's an added fact. There's, there's mm-hmm. more grassland dependent plants and animal species in Southern grasslands than in the entirety of the Great Plains of the U.S. and Canada. And I think the third, uh, the third attribute there that makes them special is um they, they have influences from different parts of the world, you know, so the, the pine savannas of like Florida and Southern Georgia have a lot of connectivity with the Caribbean and Central America through the course mm. of time. The, the grasslands of um, Virginia and some of the high mountain meadows like um, um, White Top Mountain, Virginia, for example, has a lot more in common with the alpine meadows of Maine and, and Newfoundland, Canada than it does with any other southern grassland. And then we wow. also have some that have a lot of connectivity with like northern Mexico. So it's a mixing ground of all kinds of grasslands that comes from a very long, long history. But the final part to that is why don't we see them as much anymore? 
Um, the east is climatically a region that has plenty of rainfall. You know, it's not like the Great Plains, which doesn't have forests because there's too little rain. We have anywhere from 40 to 100 inches of rain in the east. So theoretically, there should be plenty of, of, of water to support forest growth. But factors like fire, a long history of megafauna grazing, um, odd soils and rocky shallow soils that, that keep trees from developing, these are all combined to, to create this wonderful mosaic landscape that the South mm -hmm. once was. And what we're basically faced with is that we've, we've lost more than 90 to 95 percent, in some cases greater than 99 percent of our original southern grasslands. And the reasons for that loss are very various. And um, but there's a there's a strong story there that I'll end with here. The story of the loss of southern grasslands is the story of American history. They are they are inextricably linked. And mm. what we're doing is trying to tell that story really for the first time. So enter a philanthropist who mm -hmm. you, you come to realize has money <laughs> to, to help. So that, that's the impetus for creating the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. So what, what happens when that, uh, when that phone call leads to the next step? What, what happened then? Well, so... Yeah, so this this gentleman was really a native of Arkansas. So he was hmm. a Southern native, but had had gone on to move to New York City. Um, he became affiliated with the, his family um, has a foundation called the Band Foundation, B A N D, and um, they had a pretty long history of giving to support African savanna conservation. Hmm. And when he heard our story about the plight of Southern grasslands, we had thirty different speakers at this event in 2016. So it wasn't just me speaking or others. It was 30, 33 different invited speakers from across the South talking about this issue. And we went on field trips and he, um, he said, man, you know, we've been invested in African savanna conservation. We're realizing we need to do more at home here. You know, we have our own basically American Serengeti to think about. Hmm. And he said, um, you know, our, our foundation really is, our strength is taking risk and catalyzing to make action happen. He said, you know, we may invest in you and it might fail, but we're going to, we think we want to try. He says, here's the first thing. I need you to go back and I need uh, you and your collaborator, my co-founder, Theo Witzel, who's the state botanist for the state of Arkansas. Uh, he works, his day job is with the Arkansas Natural Heritage Commission. He said, you and Theo go back and uh, we're going to give you guys about I don't know, three or four months to develop a concept paper of what the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative would look like. Hmm. He said, why don't you guys come back to us in October and uh, we'll go, we'll go over that. And um, if we like your ideas, then we'll probably ask you to submit us a, a proposal for some funding. You know, at this point we're thinking, man, we have no idea what, how much or anything like that. So we all of a sudden now we, we this is beginning of June, 2016 and we've got, all summer to write this concept paper. Now, I started getting a good case of writer's block. Theo gets <laughs> writer's block. Next thing you know, fast forward about three months, and I'm in Dallas at, at DFW Airport, and I'm about to get on the plane. It's Friday evening, and uh, our funder calls us, and he says, guys, I'm looking forward to getting your report on Monday morning. <laughs> I misjudged the deadline by two weeks. Oof. 
And I still had writer's block. So I, I got off and I called my buddy Theo. I said, where are you? He said, man, I'm in a hotel in Ironton, Missouri, doing a project for the U.S. Forest Service. I said, stay there. I'm flying to Nashville. I'm going to rent a car. I'll be in Missouri tonight. And you and I are writing this proposal over the weekend. Wow. And sure enough, we did. And we worked 54 hours straight with the exception of about two, two-hour naps. Mm. And that includes driving to and from Missouri. And what we came out with on Monday morning by 7 a.m. was a 55-page proposal. Actually, it was a report. It was a basically a status survey, uh, a status report, if you will, of the, the, the current state of Southern grasslands. Mm. And we thought, man, there's no way they're going to read this 55 pages. It had typos in it. It was just incomplete. They read it. They called us the next Thursday and they said, guys, we read your report. It's incredible. Mm. So next thing we want to do is we want to give you, give you some money. And they said, uh, how about you, you ask us for a planning grant of $20,000. And if we agree, well, this will be your running money for 2017 to get the underpinnings of SGI developed. And so we did that. They gave us the $20,000. And then they really upped the ante, Bob. Um, once we got into 2017, um, they said, after they reviewed our concept paper, they said, um, we're going we're gonna to meet in New York City in November 2017. And if we like your ideas then we're going to tell you how much money we might ask you for. So we waited anxiously for their call and they said, Hey guys, you there? Yeah. Well, our board has met and we're, we're considering giving you guys somewhere between 750,000 and 1.5 million. Hmm. And I just about fell out. And, um, you know, the naivety in me at that point in my career, I, I kind of thought, man, this is about to come immediately. We're about to get hmm. a big check, make stuff happen. But I'm glad they didn't, Bob. What they did is they gave it to us in a series of challenge grants, and they made us work for that money. And so the first challenge grant came in 2018 with $250,000. I'd never really raised money before. We had to raise two fifty dollars to get two fifty, dollars And that's where Andy Edwards comes in because we had that brand-new opportunity, and I talked to Andy as part of this uh, effort to apply for a USDA Regional Conservation Partnership Program grant. And he said, man, we got just the right person, potentially, if we can make this happen. So we were able to bring the private philanthropic dollars plus this new federal grant to be able to get a new coordinator. And that's Brittany Byers into place for five mm. years almost. And, um, you know, and just to wrap that up, they then came back to us with more challenge grants. And mm. collectively, now they've given us uh, $1,020,000 since 2017. Uh, and they have been so instrumental, Bob, in helping us to leverage other philanthropic funders to come and give to gra support grasslands conservation. And, uh, you know, 2020 was a hard year for everybody. Um, I thought it would be our worst year of fundraising. It was our best year. Mm. And um, I think what band is really wanting us to do is to continue to help us find those right philanthropic partners and corporate funders. And as long as we've got good, solid partners like QF, uh, with those kinds of connections and, and partners like QF, we're going to be able to really accomplish something really, really special, even more so in the next few years. That's a great segue to let's let's circle back to Andy. So, you know, in our world, there's acronym acronyms galore, right? Ex oh, yeah. Explain for our listeners who might not know what an RCPP 
Grant is. Why, and, why you got to do that, Bob? I mean, that's the like, that's. I'm not sure. I f- completely understand and help write the grant. Um, I, so the the idea, the concept is, and and NRCS over a pretty long you know time has has come to understand. I, I really do think that Quail Forever has been part of the and Pheasants Forever has been part of the reasoning behind this. But partners are are helping NRCS deliver a, a lot of great mission. Uh, and so they basically developed this regional conservation, you know, partnership program along that basis where, you know, good people are out doing good things. Let's let's help them out as an organization, as a, you know, a government entity. So um, we applied for a grant uh, with multiple states and multiple partners to, just to simplify it. And mm-hmm. and it everybody basically put their cards out on the table saying, well, here's what we have to offer. And that's in the form of, uh, you know, sometimes cash, but also uh, administration of the the positions or uh, what we, we love to call in kind, uh, which is hard to understand if you're not in the grant world, but it's, it's, it's not dollars, but it's uh, services that uh, amount to dollars. If you were to go out and volunteer, could be yeah, volunteering, uh, you know, if we're going to donate office space or computers or uh, seed in some cases or, uh, you know, and so we put together a proposal and we worked with the American Bird Conservancy on that and actually um, Quail Forever and uh, the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative end up being um we're kind of the the third party, if you will. So so the American Bird Conservancy is the the uh, recipient of that grant. And it was, again, a multi-state effort. In our case, it's Kentucky and Tennessee. And at that time was what we were we were kind of signing on to work in. Um, and so it just it just made good sense to um, to work on things. And I, I think an advantage that we've seen in working with Dwayne, because let's just face it, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're seen a lot of times as a, a hunting organization, quail forever, pheasants forever. We're seen in that vein. And really uh, it's interesting when we, we look at even our volunteers and chapters, a lot of them don't hunt quail. They just love to do habitat work. They love mm-hmm. to see great things hit the ground. And so uh, it made sense though, to, to partner with um, Dwayne and, and the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative because it showed you know, our full commitment to being the habitat organization. Uh, we, we haven't really mentioned uh, much about quail here other than the fact that they like and need um, mm-hmm. grasslands. And, uh, you know, Bob, through my recent transition to the program manager, I think, um, and I'm picking on our new uh, conservation operations um, chief, Ron, uh, Ron Leathers said to me that, you know, sometimes when you're sitting up in Minnesota, it, it feels like the Southeast that quail do live under a pine tree. You know, that's a generalized version of, of quail habitat for the Southeast and getting folks to understand that, that really a lot of our loss of course of quail habitat is, is because of agricultural development, but, but in many cases, it's just for succession. Mm. Uh, Dwayne, Dwayne mentioned that earlier that, we're in the east where we get a lot of rain. And if you leave stuff alone for three years here, it's going to have trees. Uh, it's going to have little trees. But in 10 years and 15, 20, you know, and and folks all the time, it's the, the age old thing that people will say, well, I, 
I haven't changed. Nothing's mm. changed in 40 years here mm. on my farm and I don't have quail anymore. And it's like, well, what did you do to keep stuff from changing? Cause mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, 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 the changes year over year to year are, are small. And, but really to a bird that's six inches tall at maturity, those changes are, those changes are huge. And so, you know, RCPP regional conservation partnership program allowed us to, to do what we do best and share that workload with a partner and um you know we're just we're just happy to have that we've actually just recently expanded it um david starts um Brittany, help me out here when does david start monday monday yeah yeah so so our second partnership position is uh underway the 10th of may with uh a our first foray into the into the woods, if you will, in Tennessee, we have a, a partnership uh, with SGI and for a forester on the Cumberland Plateau. So, Brittany, you're the first, right? You're the first employee of this collaboration. So, so right. tell us, tell our listeners about what you do on a day to day basis to help, you know, marry all these groups together and then create a result that's uh, on the ground. Yeah, so I'm still uh, working with private landowners, you know, implementing the RCPP programs. Um, and under our RCPP umbrella, we have equipped the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, and we have uh, ASEPWRE, the Wetland Reserve Easement Program, and we also have CSP, the Conservation Stewardship Program. And so we have designated funding under each of those programs for our particular grasslands RCPP. So I still um, function very similarly to a farm bill biologist in that regard. Um, But I also wear my, my Southeastern grasslands initiative hat (laughs) depending on the day. And we have special projects that, um, are mostly on public land or industrial land. And so how I want to merge those two, um, I guess, workloads is I would, I eventually want to use our SGI projects as showcases like demonstration areas and bring private landowners in to see, hey, this is what we're doing, you know, these are the prairie restoration projects that we've got going on. Um, this is what you can do on your property as well. And of mm-hmm. course, I'm already working with um, quite a few private landowners that are doing the same thing on their property. And, and you know, we might be able to use their areas for um, workshops and things like that, too, because landowners love to hear from other landowners. Bob, I just want to join in here and say that I appreciate Andy and Brittany, you know, giving giving the shout out to how they see SGIs is helping to add something of value to, to Quail Forever. We looked at it in just the opposite way that, you know, we were this upstart, visionary young organization. We needed credibility. You know, we needed partners with strength and credibility like QF to believe in us. And the fact that they took a chance to say, we value your message enough that we want to partner with you. That was huge for us. I mm. mean, you know, cause um, you know, sometimes the, 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 the worlds of like, uh, you know, hunting and fishing and that realm of conservation and, and the worlds of 
like pure ecological research. And, you know, sometimes they, they, there's a lot of overlap, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes there's a couple different camps there. And, um, you know, I, I like the fact that our, the partnerships that we're developing are diverse and they allow us to hopefully sit right in the middle of those and, and, and partner with a, a wide variety of different partners that uh, hopefully we add credibility to what they're doing. But mm-hmm. certainly, like in this case, QF adds, I think, a, a, a huge amount of uh, credibility to what we're doing. And I look at it as, as one of Brittany's bosses. Uh, I look at what she does on a day-in and day-out basis as not a QF task or an SGI task. I look at it as she's just doing the job she's supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's representing both of our organizations really, really well. And she's managing a bunch. You know, she's got her private lens contacts that she's working on. This morning, I think you were out, you said you found grasshopper sparrows at a project we're working on for Google. Uh, but yet you also were checking out rare plants that were coming up at a state park where we've been uh, restoring prairie. So I love the diverse role that you have, Brittany, and I appreciate our partnership very much. When you talk to landowners, Brittany, and I'm I'm thinking about ABC, the American Bird Conservancy, and they uh, certainly they have certain species that they're trying to influence with this initiative. Quail Forever obviously has a favorite species in mind. Uh, you know, Dwayne's thinking about plants. You know, from an ecological perspective, um, when you talk with landowners, private landowners, what are some of the themes? that come back to you over and over, whether is it a wildlife species or a suite of species? Is it the holistic view? What motivates landowners across the Southeast to get involved in, and sort of reestablish the grassland habitats that uh, once were there that they're trying to bring back? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll start to answer that by saying when I was a farm bill biologist before I took this position. Um, I would say, uh, you know, the top few species that I was getting requests to manage for were Bob White's pollinators. And then of course, still the game species, deer and Turkey, Mm -hmm. um, which I still love to talk to folks about those species. But when I started working on RCPP and we um, tried to do a lot of outreach and workshops and 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 really also educating our NRCS coworkers because they're the ones that you really want to make sure have a good grasp and understanding of what we're trying to do because you know when you have such a large territory, you can't be in every single USDA field office when the landowner or producer walks to the door. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure that the NRCS folks are up to speed with, you know, what you're trying to push and, and, um, you know, the concepts you're trying to get across to folks. So we tried to do workshops specifically for the NRCS folks so that they would understand what we're trying to do and, and things like that. So, um, you know, I'd say after the first year of RCPP's, uh, you know, initiation, we noticed a transition from folks that primarily called us about game management, and it became the more holistic requests. Like, you know, we've heard about some rare plant, 
that could be nearby or, you know, we really do want to do something for um, meadowlarks or, you know, grasshopper sparrows or something like that. And Mm so I think the folks that are requesting our assistance um, are coming from different walks of life and it's become much more broad. Yeah, Bob, you know, one thing too, Dad, what Brittany just said is um, we do get a lot of those people now, I think, that obviously they come from those traditional ways of inquiring about conservation, you know, a lot of game species and stuff. But one of the things that I think we're really proud of that we try to bring to this topic is uh, bringing in the story of American history Mm. into this, right? Because you know, these grasslands that were here, what, one of the things we're, we like to say is that we're telling an untold story of American history and conservation. Um, there simply are massive grassland ecosystems in the east that still are completely unclassified, undescribed by scientists and ecologists, and completely unknown to most of the scientific, conservation, and historical community. I'll give you a case in point. Um, we're working on a project in Southwest Virginia uh, with Senator Bill and Tracy Frist in uh, near Blacksburg, Roanoke. And part of that, we were up there in the central Appalachians. It's beautiful. You know, when they say Virginia's for lovers, uh, there's no joke, man. That place is, is gorgeous. And there's something nostalgic about Virginia too, right? You get there and you, you think about the forefathers, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington having been there. So as part of this project, we were starting to look into the, we were, we were curious because we were finding all these little blue stem grasslands in the heart of Appalachia. And the, the, the deeper we dug, the more we realized these don't, they have never been classified. They don't have a name like Longleaf Pine Savannah's got a name. These don't have a name. So we started digging and we started looking through uh, historical newspapers from like the 1790s. And we started looking in land survey records. And then all of a sudden, one of our volunteers, Sue Bible, found um, a recent publication by Mount Vernon, George Washington's home. And their historians had dug up some research that George Washington himself, when he was a land surveyor, well, well before he became president, he actually was surveying in the grasslands of northern Virginia, hmm. less than an hour outside of modern day Washington, D.C., So these historians who were trying to grapple with and make sense of why was George Washington surveying, you know, uh, post oaks in the middle of a savanna in northern Virginia, they didn't, a lot of the historical community hasn't really come to terms with that. Hmm. You know, they don't really know how to interpret that. And and much of the historical community interprets that as, you know, these grasslands were uh, created by um, you know, Native American burning, or they were created in a fairly recent context of just a few thousand years. But when you begin to look at the presence of endemic species like bobwhite quail that need these habitats, and, and lots of species of plants and animals that don't occur anywhere else outside these habitats, there's an antiquity there. That mm. means that their presence on the landscape dates back tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years. They're too ancient to have evolved in a very recent time frame. Hmm. And so when we begin to look deeper, we actually see that there's a lot of clues to these grasslands in American history. And so if we're talking to somebody, let's say they're, you know, they're a business uh, person, they may not have a care in the world about ecology, but they may really love American history. Mm-hmm. And we look for those gateways to tell this story 
whether it's through the hunting community, the historical aspect, or through the ecological aspect. And usually one of those three routes can help us to connect to people. And that's what we're trying to do. So you talked about earlier on how many different types of grasslands, brushlands, um, savannas there are across the Southeast. And I, I, we've, we've touched about uh, around fire a variety of mm-hmm. times, right? And I, I think back to a podcast I did with Dr. Bill Palmer from Tall Timbers. And he's like, you know, prescribed fire. We need prescribed fire in the landscape every two years in Northern Florida to maximize quail habitat and to, to sort of maintain the integrity of what's considered a grassland in Northern Florida. How much of a, can you make the statement that prescribed fire or fire in general is the missing element across much of the Southeast for maintaining all these different types of grasslands? Or because there's 200 different kinds, there's probably 200 different reasons or 200 different ways to manage those grasslands for their keeping the integrity of them as an ecosystem. Yeah, I think we could keep it real simple. I think um, I think we boil it down to three major types. Um, the, the three most prominent grasslands in the South, which collectively equaled up to probably about 110 to 120 million acres of the Southern landscape. Now, that, to put that in context, that's probably about a third to maybe 40 or so percent hmm. of, of what our concept is of the greater Southeast. Um, so what where'd all that go, right? Well, the vast majority of it was in Savannah. Uh, at least 90 million acres alone was lonely pine savanna. You can tack on another 20, 30, probably 40 million acres, it may be even, to, to eventually include more of the oak savanna types. But without question, the pine and oak savannas are fire-dependent communities in the sense of their biodiversity depends on regular fire. Mm-hmm. So what we do there is to understand the needs for fire. We look to tree ring records, and they tell us that those fires were burning depending on where in the South you were, every one to probably four years. And so Florida would would be a very high frequency because the natural lightning periodicity down there is very, very regular. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think fire is exceedingly important for savanna ecosystems. What happens? You take fire out, all those savannas become forests mm-hmm. in, the, in the course of a century and a half. Um, then the second big type of grassland that we had were the most fertile prairies you can imagine. Places like the Grand Prairie of Eastern Arkansas or the Black Belt Prairie of Mississippi, you know, they now today are the essential breadbaskets of the Southeast. Mm-hmm. The cornfields of North Alabama and cotton fields of Alabama, Mississippi and the rice fields of Arkansas were all historically mostly prairie landscapes. And those have been the ones that have been lost by the greatest percentage Every single one of those, of multiple kinds of those deep soil prairies, has been lost by 99.99% in wow. all cases. And that's, yeah. that's I mean, any duck hunter will know that's the stopover place for ducks in the winter absolutely. too, right? There's a quote by Thomas Nuttall from Arkansas in 18-teens where he talks about the Grand Prairie was a flooded prairie because it's got a clay hard pan under it. And that water would just sit on top of that prairie. And you can imagine those ducks coming down and just lighting in that open, in that open prairie, wet prairie. Mm. But then, then the third category is the one that's the most enigmatic. And it's really what I was talking about that George Washington was surveying and what we're working on with the Frist in Southwest Virginia. 
and that is these fertile pastures, these fertile meadows. These were the first places the first Europeans were grazing their horses and their cattle and their sheep as they started migrating out of the Chesapeake Bay region uh, back in the 1600s and early 1700s. They were the first places that opened up good grazing lands. And then if you look at those, a lot of them are really fertile. They're underlain by limestone. They include central Tennessee, the bluegrass of Kentucky, uh, the Ozarks of Missouri. And what is that region today? It's the great fescue belt that mm -hmm. a lot of our colleagues talk about, responsible for the demise of, of much of the Bob White. And so we believe that those grasslands were largely grazing, uh, managed by grazers like bison and others. Um, and there's some great new research from archaeological resources that, that have just come out that are now showing that stone spear points and arrowheads uh, from the period of about 12,000 years ago to 7,500 years ago. You, I, we've all probably found an arrowhead out in the field, right? Yep. They are now finding that in there, these micro fractures along the margin of those arrowheads have protein residues from bison. Hmm that are telling a totally new story about how long bison were here in the South. We thought they disappeared at the end of the ice age and came back in the middle 1500s. Turns out that's not true. Mm. They were in the Carolina Piedmont all the way from the ice age up to about 7,500 years ago, based on this brand new technology from forensic medicine, which wow. if we can now begin to study other areas of the Southeast and look at stone tools, they're going to they're going to totally revolutionize our concept of the importance of grazers yeah. here in the south. So that's the three types, Bob. Um, and they all have different needs. But those fertile meadows probably weren't as fire dependent as the other two types were. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I, I love how you broke that down for for somebody like me to, to understand real, real easily. So. Tell me about your vision now. So Southeastern Grasslands Initiative, relatively young, right? I mean, we're, we're mm -hmm. talking about 20, what would you say, Brittany, you started 2018, I think. In, that was in our this, founding year. Yeah. January 2018. And then we got a pandemic in the middle of that. So um, right. tell me about, you know, 10 years from now and then push further out what you envision you know, in that 55 page document of, you know, that you wrote to get your initial challenge grant, I'm, I'm guessing you had a end goal, a dream. What's your dream, Dwayne? That's a good question. So, you know, first of all, we, we, uh, we wake up every day and know how great this battle is to try to raise awareness about grasslands. That's our, really our top mission and to put more grasslands back on the landscape. We also realize that we're a small team, we're brand new, and we can't do it alone. And the only way we can accomplish this is through partnerships. Mm -hmm. So we have been fortunate to partner, partner with QF. Brittany and I talk weekly about how we can begin to grow that partnership more. SGI's got a big, we've taken a big slice out of North America. You know, we've got mm -hmm. a 24 state region. It goes from Long Island, New York, to Columbia, Missouri, all the way south to Miami. Wow. and to the Mexico border uh, in Brownsville, Texas, and all the way west to the Great Plains. So how are we going to solve or help solve? It's not our job alone. How are we going to help solve the crisis of, of grassland loss and grassland biodiversity collapse through partnerships, number one? So these past uh, two or three years, we've been fortunate, uh, in addition to QF, to partner with uh, the University of Georgia. We've got a brand new position that just started there actually this Monday. 
Hmm. Uh, Zach Wood is our brand new Georgia grasslands coordinator. Uh, we partner with the North Carolina Botanical Garden. Um, and I think that showcases a little bit where we've got some, some uh, uh, pretty different kinds of partnerships. Uh, so we've got a partnership out of Chapel Hill with them. And um, we've got, um, thanks to some funding from some philanthropic donors in, Ch in Chattanooga and Atlanta, we've now got a Southern Appalachian grasslands coordinator hmm. uh, who covers the Southern Appalachian region. Um, our next um, probably expansion points would be after we continue to sort of build this, this current team and support the current team for a, a fairly prolonged period. We're going to try to expand, I think, into Arkansas next. Um, our, our donor who's from Arkansas has a real goal to see us expand there. I know QF's got a great and active mm -hmm. program in Arkansas. So that's, I think, a natural point of expansion. I think Virginia is another natural point of expansion. Um, for the long haul, though, Bob, I think once we begin through partnerships to continue to build throughout our 24 state region, you know, we need we don't we are not looking to come in and save the day. We're looking to come in and join hands with partners and help bring more attention and resources. Hmm. So if we can help garner corporate support, more philanthropic support, more government funding to, to uplift grassless conservation, that's what we want to do. I think also over the long haul, Bob, um, just to wrap up here, you know, we, we, we want to imagine a day in my lifetime. I'm 42. I want us to have the southeastern equivalent of national tall grass prairies, mm. uh, national grasslands, be that a lonely pine savanna and the sandhills of South Carolina or a, a totally recreated tall grass prairie in North Alabama recreated out of cotton fields. Mm. We want to have those places around the South again, multi-thousand acre or multi-hundred acre tracks where people can come back and visualize what these landscapes were that were lost and use those for inspiring people. And I'll, I'll say this, that there's some, uh, just two weeks ago, there was a major announcement in, in Virginia. Um, a, a, a philanthropist went in and bought 7,300 acres of, of land in the Piedmont of Virginia, right on the North Carolina border. That area back in the 1600s was known as the Grand Savannah. Mm. And mm. there's now, because of his philanthropy, there's going to be a lot of focused work by a lot of partners to begin to restore that to a lost Savannah landscape. So with these kinds of opportunities now, I think that we have a, a very bright future ahead of us with our partnership and with others that are developing, and um, we're really excited about it. That That is really exciting. I mean, listeners know how much I love our national grasslands. We've got 14 national grasslands in the United States. Um, I've talked about many of them, Fort Pier National Grasslands, Buffalo Gap, Comanche, Cimarron. We have 14 of them in the country spanning 4 million acres. There's not a single one of those in the Southeastern United States. They're all Great Plains and West. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it speaks to your dream, you know, one day having a grassland or, or, or more, right? If you got 200 different kinds, there's probably, <laughs> there's probably a need yeah. for a variety there. If, if, if you were to, you know, have this crisp, the, 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 well, that, uh, that crystal ball or what's the, um, you make a wish, right? If you could, if you, the genie in the bottle. The yeah. G, yeah. If you, if you had that one wish, where would you put that one grassland in the Southeast that, 
that would be the, you know, kind of the, the crown jewel. You know, um, I would have said originally in my, in the eco region where I lived for 13 years, it's called the Penny Royal Plain, um, which is right on the Kentucky Tennessee line. That was an area historically of 3.7 million acres of, of former tall grass prairie. Um, and that's where Brittany's office is located in the mm. town of Clarksville, Tennessee. And while we've got some great partnerships going on there with Google and others, it's going to be a challenge, I think, to piece together a big grassland there because land is so expensive and for other reasons. Mm. So I think where, where I would start is a, a maybe a, a lower hanging fruit opportunity is it's yes, I want to see us eventually go into an opportunity where there maybe there's some agricultural land that, you know, is there's an opportunity that presents itself to recreate, you know, 5,000 acres of prairie. I think the more likely opportunity, the more realistic one that we should be focused on is going into what I call, um, I mean, the low hanging fruit is going into areas, Bob, that are forested currently, that have all the signatures and the stories that if they could tell the trees, if they could tell a story, they would say, please thin some forest out for me right now. Mm. Please take some underbrush out. Please bring back fire. And we can walk into countless forests, whether it's in the piney woods of East Texas or um, in the Piedmont of North Carolina, um, you know, just various places. We can go in and we see all the clues that they need to be open again. Mm. And Bob, if, so I think if we can find uh, blocks of land that are several thousand acres, and these exist in many places. I mean, we know of a place right now that's just north of Chattanooga that's 14,000 acres of Loblolly pine plantation that would be ripe for creating like a 9,000 acre contiguous savanna hmm. with the right investors. We got a landowner that called us uh, in October. Brittany and I just went down and visited with him. He says, hey, can you come look at my farm? And we get that kind of request like weekly, you know, and sometimes we don't have time to get to everybody. We didn't get back to him, you know, with, within just a few days. And so he came back to us and he says, hey, I got an 11,000 acre farm down here in Alabama. Would you mind coming to look at it? I was like, 11,000 acres? Bob, it's almost eight miles wide. Wow. And, wow. you know, so I think we look at those kinds of places uh, where there are forested landscapes that are aching to be back open as savannas. And there's a, that's where the opportunities are. Hmm. Um, and, I, and I'll say this, that I believe we are about to experience one of the greatest collapses of biodiversity in Eastern North America. And it's not even really being talked about. It's underground biodiversity mm. because in the shade of these long suppressed savannas that have now been closed for us for 50 to 100 years, there's something still alive and that's the seed bank. Mm. And we know of it now from a few really good case studies, but that seed bank has a shelf life. And it's about to go out. Hmm. And if we don't rescue that seed bank within the next 5, 10, 20 years, we're going to lose a huge ability in the South to restore those savanna landscapes. So are there are there species of plants that are, for all intents and purposes, extinct that are still in, in existence in the seed bank underneath the ground? Um, a colleague of mine in West, in, uh, Western North Carolina has just published a, a big paper on extinction of plant species in North America. And there's about 115 or so that have gone extinct since North America was, was settled by Europeans. 
that's not a lot, right? Right. But um, there's while there are, I can't think of any um, good examples in the southeast where a true globally extinct species that's n not here anymore sure. is likely still in the seed bank. There absolutely are cases where, uh, well, I'll tell you a great uh, case we just found out about last fall. Our Southern Appalachian coordinator was with a great private landowner, uh, Adam Hayes, down in the Coosa Prairie of Alabama, that region, just northeast of Birmingham. They went into a brand new clear cut and found uh, prairie rattlesnake uh, weed in there called Nabilis asper, had never been seen in Alabama, and that plant reemerged out of the seed bank. Hmm where it had probably been covered up by forest for at least a half a century. Wow. So there's, there's definitely surprises there waiting to, to come out. So as we, as we go around to closing thoughts, um, before we get to that end point, I want to, I want to throw it to Brittany for folks that are listening across the States of the Southeast and they want to learn a little more. They want to take action um, what's their next step? What do they do? Well, a couple of things. Um, first, it would be wonderful if they would either join their local Quail Forever chapter or and or become um, a Southeastern Grasslands Initiative volunteer. Um, our volunteer program is is kind of just getting launched, and that's a huge part of our mission and, and vision, you know, outreach and education is huge. Um, so I would encourage anyone to visit, um, segrasslands.org, our, our website. Um, also visit quailforever.org to find their closest QF chapter. Um, and if you're a landowner or a producer and you need some assistance with wildlife habitat, definitely see if you can, find a partner biologist on the Quail Forever website. Um, and if you don't have one close, then most state wildlife agencies have a private lands program. So reach out to a biologist to get some help and assistance. Check out our Southeastern Grasslands Initiative website. Also check us out on social media. Um, I also want to see QF chapters and Southeastern Grasslands volunteers merge more. I would like for us to have um, projects on both private lands and public lands and working together and, you know, doing a lot of the restoration work and get boots on the ground. And um, so that's like a personal mission of mine. That's a good mission. Those are my suggestions. <laughs> and and uh, go ahead. What, what's your closing thought for the, the conversation. Any, any, would you like to wrap a bow on this for us? Sure. Um, I would say, I think if more of the public could see our natural grassland systems, um, especially the ones that are still hanging on that have been restored, have gotten the attention that they need. If they could just see them, if they could just see, a savanna, a woodland, one of our prairies, a glade, they're just mm. magical. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, they're just breathtaking. So if more of the public could see what we have here and what our potential is, I think it would resonate more and we could start to, you know, put more focus back, back on them. Yeah. 
and get, yeah, more restoration work going. So that's a great point. It, it, you, you tend to fall in love with something, you know, and if you've never put your eyes on it, it's hard to fall in love. Absolutely. Um, Bob, uh, if, if I made this one thing is, um, one of the things that I think is a, will be a struggle for a while is because so many of our natural intact grasslands in many parts of the South are tiny, then getting people like, you know, conservation funders and others that have the ability to potentially help us uh, recreate grasslands at big scale, getting people excited by that can be difficult mm -hmm. when all they might, you know, Brittany and I can go out and Andy and I can go out and we can see a, a, a 0.3 acre roadside remnant in Henry County, Tennessee, that's got compass plant in it and just get fired up, you know, but um, if we need a conservation funder who has the ability to come in and buy a thousand acres, they want to, I think, see something that's a little bit more tangible, you mm -hmm. know? So I think that's our, our goal over the next few years. Well, one of the things we need to try to figure out, how can we uh, recreate, these proof of concept landscapes mm. like Katusa wildlife management area has got a thousand acres Savannah that they've restored. That is tangible. Mm. You can take legislators there, conservation funders there. You can get them excited because then they can feel like they're back in Tennessee in 1720. Sure. We need to do that again for Mississippi, Louisiana, Kentucky, Southern Indiana and other places where it's appropriate. So then we can have people landscapes that mm -hmm. have the species like Bob White and others that will inspire people to make big change. And that's what we need. Both small scale landowners, big scale landowners, legislators and conservation funders alike. Right. And hunters. Right. Because when uh, Absolutely. When, when somebody wearing blaze orange following a bird dog walks on those thousand mm -hmm. acres and finds a dozen coveys, you know, then talk about falling in love. Right. That, that mm -hmm. big change. I think that's one of the most important groups because they they have such a intimate connection with that land yeah. that landscape. All right, we'll go to uh, Wooly Mammoth to to put his final <laughs> closing thought. Uh, you know, if, as I started this podcast, two kids riding on a bus together, now saving the southeastern grasslands of the United States together. That's a pretty cool yep. story. Uh, Andy, what still are your final it. thoughts? Yeah, we're still riding the bus. Um, you know, I, I think I'm kind of happy to be on the ride. Uh, I think especially some when I look around the southeast, we got a lot of great partnerships. I mean, we really do. And it's not what this particular podcast is about, but just just really good people and good partners that we're working with. But Dwayne's kind of the epitome of that. And uh, I've seen, um, maybe I can use myself as an example. And, but I, you know, I'm a redneck at heart. I'm a, I'm a good old boy. He loves to hunt and fish, but I also really value the environment and value that uh, we want to leave a legacy behind that is better than we, we came to. And I think that is what a lot of hunters of my generation and, and younger, not, not to say that, that the older generations don't have that same feeling, but I really feel that uh, lately in the last five years with chapter starts with quail forever, it's been young, young men and women younger than me. Not that that's that hard to achieve anymore, but uh, younger people that are energetic about making a difference. Uh, we love to, you know, and I'm, I'm talking to the podcast listeners here because uh, we love to pick on some millennials for wanting to see an absolute quick change, but, 
it's it's not impossible at all. You know, some of the things that Dwayne is talking about and Brittany too about the forest, uh, you know, those those I guess when we're out when we're out of the fields uh, and out of intense agricultural areas, the, some of the great diversity is there, and it's not just plants that are growing. It's in that it's in the dirt. It's in the seed bed that's sitting there. It's been waiting for hundreds of years to to pop back when we give it some sunlight, and like that has me recharged about potential and hope uh it's kind of one thing that i'm really gonna try and and keep in the forefront of my mind about our messaging is we we're restoring the hope we we, the good old days are gone we we don't need to talk about how what we've lost because there is absolute you know there's hundreds of success stories across the range of all the quail species to where we can point to here's what we did and in a very short amount of time we had a absolute response to diversity of plants diversity of wildlife species insects um, just increased biodiversity you know across the board Um, and we're making those huge differences Mm. one little spot at a time and Dwayne, I think Brittany started it with that concept of look, if you, if you could carry somebody out and show them or if you can go visit someone on their land. Uh, these two. I hope that the passion came through with it, you know, over the airwaves, because if you were out in a field with them and you, you get to watch them run around like they're on an Easter egg. hunt, <laughs> uh, And I get to go along and be a That's parasitic true. botanist. <laughs> I mean, I do. I get to go along and be the parasite going, what's that? What's that? That's awesome. I mean, it's super, super contagious. But then, you know, so that small scale, but not everybody can be involved in that. And then Dwayne took it to that next level when we talked about, I had to write it down here, proof of concept, landscapes, Dwayne. Perfect example of how you could carry someone to Katusa and there would be no doubt in their mind that that needs to happen Mm. on a large scale. Uh, diversity is there and you can do that in the longleaf pine savannas but then doing that uh, uh, over replicating that over a, a large area I think of prairie wildlife in Mississippi that they're trying to do that and there's of course tall timbers is doing that but there's areas in the Carolinas and you're working in Virginia and just because at some level we all want to think locally and so if we can we can show somebody within an hour or two of their their home. Look at this. Look at what diversity should be here. Then we we can make a difference. Uh, just kind of take that small scale and replicate it out hundreds of times, and that's where our success is going to lie. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I think it'll. I think, I'm excited for the. I feel like we're kind of like on the launch pad a little bit. You know, it's just going to get better. Yeah, it definitely feels to be at a tipping point um, for not only for the ecosystem and the grassland ecosystems that we're talking about, but, you know, we, the, the cases have been made for pollinators and monarchs and songbirds and water quality and soil. And when, when Dwayne brings in natural history too, and it's like, you know, it, there's just so many different connectors here to a healthy, yeah. healthy landscape. Uh, Prairie preacher. Dr. Dwayne Estes, the final thought is yours. You have the podium. I think the word is, um, is synergy. You know, it's, it's, um, 
putting together in a synergy of partnerships, which we've been talking about. But like, I, I think the, the model that I have in, in my mind that I, I like to see, you know, Brittany work on, on a day-to-day basis and our other future joint coordinators that I'd love to imagine that we can develop together is think about, think about what those low hanging fruit are. It's the, it's the fact that if you look across the South, how many millions of acres right now are in public ownership? Mm. And obviously there's a lot of land, even greater percentages in private ownership. But think about those public land units like state parks, state forests, wildlife management areas, national parks, national forests, that we know once supported uh, large-scale savannas. And, and again, if we go through there with a the forensic eye and we can see those clues, if we can begin to um, work at those scales, let's say across 10,000 acres of a wildlife management area, could create a major nucleus, right? But then the private lands connection that borders those and that helps weave together those public land units becomes so much more important for connectivity. So that's where I see Brittany's role and what she's doing in her day-to-day work is, you know, and one day she may be talking with the folks at Arnold Air Force Base uh, about the potential for big-scale savanna restoration. But a lot of her work, and I would say probably, you know, greater than 75%, is working with the private landowners in between those big land Mm -hmm. units. And by bringing that synergy and that cohesion both in terms of public-private partnerships, public-private lands, but also the synergy of working with a bunch of different kinds of partners like NRCS, Quail Forever, you know, Tennessee Wildlife Federation, American Bird Conservancy. I mean, we could sit here really and rattle off 20 or 30 folks that are uh, organizations that are working in partnership along the same mission. And I just see that as continuing to gain ground and momentum in the next few years. I'm really excited about the future. And because of that, I'm optimistic and it's hard to be optimistic sometimes for conservation in the 21st century, but I think we have a lot to be optimistic about. Yeah. Yeah. That's been a recurring theme. Andy's been on the gig for about a month now as the quail forever program manager. And as he just mentioned, it's a, it's all about bringing the hope the hope for a, a, a surge in quail and it's in, you know, interconnected to the Southeastern grassland initiative ecosystem that we're talking about so kudos to all of you um it's exciting stuff and uh really appreciate all of your time if folks want to learn more i'll I'll reiterate um britney's comment about following the southeastern grassland initiative on social media particularly facebook i've followed um a lot in the last couple of weeks super active on facebook you can see uh the Prairie Preacher talking on some video on the Facebook page uh, and, and get to know Dr. Dwayne Estes a little bit more through that. So uh, thank you all for, for uh, spending this time with me. Bob, can I leave you with a quote? Absolutely. All right. I'm a, I'd like to quote the great Dr. E.O. Wilson of Harvard University and also a famous uh, Alabama native. He coined a new term in 2013 that I wish that we would all adopt. Hmm. He, he coined the term the Southern grassland biome, which uh, as we all know, a biome is the highest level of thinking about ecosystems. He said the Southern grassland biome, when it is properly de- defined to include the lonely pine savanna, 
is probably the richest terrestrial biome in all of North America hmm. to understand, cherish, and preserve the great natural heritage of the Southern grassland biome should be a priority goal in America's environmental movement. I couldn't agree with them more. So um, I hope you guys will join SGI and QF and let's get that uh, term Southern grassland biome into more common usage. I think that's a really important term we should all begin to embrace. There you go. Uh, so I'll, I'll weave that into my final quote. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, always follow the dog into the Southern grassland biome. Something good will rise, including a covey of quail. Thanks for listening, folks. Really appreciate it.